0: tuned in to the world's greatest podcast.
1: This is Matt. <laughs> the, world,
0: the world's greatest, greatest podcast, podcast in our own minds. According to my own measurement. This is Mindful <laughs> Conversations with Matt and Rob. And today we have another very special guest. Yes, we do. So in the studio here at the Response Care Center, we have Ann Smith joining us. She is actually the the wife to somebody that spent some time with us in his internship.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. Rick Smith. So, Anne, so good to have you at the, it's not the round table. What, what shape is this? Teardrop table? It's I like, don't know. It's like a rectangle. Or triangle. Triangle. It's a triangle. We're so happy that you're here.
2: Thank you, and thank you for welcoming me to Conversations with Matt and Rob,
0: <laughs> absolutely, and the
2: world's greatest podcast.
0: Well, we told Ann before we started where she said, "Can I share this podcast?" And we said, "Absolutely!" Like we we invited you because of your influence. So hopefully, <laughs> your your network, you'll share this, and then we'll get more people listening. Well, if it benefits someone, it needs to be shared. Absolutely, um, it's kind of a milestone. This is episode thirty-five. You know, really. You know how you talk about kids, you know, like how old is your child? Well, it's six months, you know, 18 months, you know, 73 months, right? At some point you stop referring to months, right? Right. But I think 35 is significant. Uh, Yes. You know, and so it's a round number. Um, We're going to be talking today about um, really human development and being trauma informed. That's not an unusual topic for us to talk about trauma or no. de- or human development or that the planet is a dangerous place to be. But we, with Anne being here, she brings a lot of really cool information because she's been around the globe helping people understand what trauma is and how to be trauma
1: informed. And Trauma Free World, the organization that you're with, is a really good organization. Making a difference and we like that.
0: So before we get into the guts of our conversation, let's have you and just share from whatever angle you want, um, kind of what is Trauma-Free World and what have you been doing um, in this arena in your life?
2: Okay. Well, I originally got into trauma care um, when we were living and working in East Africa. So spending time with orphaned and vulnerable children and trying to help grow them holistically. And so we, were, we created this great holistic development program, but we watched a sizable group of kids fail out in school, and they had terrible behavior. So we kept coming back to the table, reworking our plan, and eventually got to the point where we said, we're missing something, and we're missing something big. So started to do a little research and realized, unless we help these kids address their trauma issues, we just weren't going to move forward anywhere. So we found Trauma-Free World and were trained by them and became trainers by them, and now I work full-time for Trauma-Free World, really walking alongside other organizations that are bumping up against trauma in the lives of the people they're working with and helping them to become trauma-informed, to kind of change the lens and the, the way they view the world.
1: And it's interesting, you discovered something that science has validated and we see all the time as well. If you don't address the trauma, it's like trying to train somebody that is malnourished. If they're not eating, it's not going to work. Exactly. Yeah. uh, When I think of
0: the term trauma-informed, it sounds like a term we would use here in a clinical environment. Yeah. This. The center is trauma informed, so maybe I would just rephrase that a little bit to be aware of how trauma has impacted a person's life, and then to understand how to relate to them. I mean, would that be correct? Or yeah,
2: would- I think that's a really good um, overarching definition mm-hmm. of being trauma informed. Yeah. If you want to get into a little bit more specific, it would be. Um, learning about trauma and recognizing its impact on the life of a person from their body their brain their biology their belief system about themselves their behavior Um, and then it's not about expecting that person to change it's about me as somebody coming alongside them changing my approach in the way i'm going to care for them so i'm going to try to create an environment of felt safety i'm going to try to connect with them to bring down those big emotions and the big behavior that we're seeing I'm going to help them work through their traumatic past and tell a different strength based story of what happened to them. Um, and we're going to do that all in relationship. So mm-hmm. becoming like trauma-informed is really about building relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. Which we have already mentioned a number of times on this podcast, the context of life is relationship. So it's like, yeah, that's a cool thing. Mm-hmm. And then from an organizational perspective, it would be tweaked just a little bit, right? And when you're when you're helping an organization become trauma informed, that looks like then training the staff or the the people about these uh, trauma informed relationship.
2: That's right. So we are equipping. We're either training the staff in our trauma competent care curriculum, um, at either at a low level or at a high level, depending on what they want. But we also work to help them have um, an affiliate trainer so that they have somebody who can train the curriculum themselves within their organization. So that's actually my specific role at the organization is to oversee all of our affiliate trainers around the world. And we work to um, help them learn how to train the curriculum in their own culture, in their own context, in their own language, so that they can be more... um, really be impacting the culture right where the culture is at. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Again, it's, a, we've said it before, the planet is a dangerous place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, so the global perspective of trauma is is natural to all human, um, the, the human race around the globe. And uh, so although we have a lot of differences that define us culturally, the reality is all of us have experienced some form of trauma. Now, trauma, I had asked you pre-recording in a conversation, Anne, that trauma, what defines if something is traumatic? And you had a good definition of it.
2: Yeah. The, the way I, we like to define trauma is it's any, any event or experience that overwhelms a person's capacity to cope. Mm -hmm. so it's it is individual you know it could be something something that other people might not perceive as traumatic like i lost my dog but depending on your life circumstances that could be a really traumatic experience for you yes you know often we think of trauma as like the big thing like i went through a war or i some i had a terrible accident but it's, it's really specific to a person. Yeah. So what might be traumatic to one person might not be traumatic to another person. Right. And vice versa.
0: So just to interject a personal story, which is common for me. <laughs> <it is. laughs> but when I was like 7 years old, I lived at a house that had a playground that was kind of it there it was there was like a wall and then you went down to the playground. Like you could walk around the sides and go down to the playground. But I decided, and I may have told this story before on this podcast, so I apologize if it's repeating, but I put a Superman cape on and <laughs> I got an umbrella and I stood at the top of the wall and I I erected the umbrella yeah. and I jumped off the wall. Oh. Okay. And um, <laughs> how did that go for you? So it didn't go so well. My collarbone <laughs> broke. Oh. Yeah, I think I had watched like Pippi Lawn Stockings or whatever that is, you know, where they float with the umbrella and the Superman thing. And I was living, but it was a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. But I I seem, it doesn't seem to trigger me today. Like I don't have like a traumatic trigger toward umbrellas. (laughs) Do you, toward Superman capes? I don't wear them generally, (laughs) Okay, but maybe that's why. But the point I'm making is, like, we can experience all kinds of difficulties, but it doesn't overwhelm us. That's right. And the reality is you can experience things, even small things, that for some reason overwhelm us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then that leads to a behavior that kind of messes with our chi.
1: Oh, yeah. Especially relationally. And they can be cumulative, right? That's right. So developmental or situational Mm -hmm. sometimes big t versus little t traumas Mm -hmm. but it's it really is important it's the interpretation of the individual not necessarily my interpretation of what constitutes trauma for you
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and when you were talking about it can be it can cumulate accumulate there's that's true too i mean there are there is acute trauma which is like a one-time event that can mm-hmm. be really overwhelming and can be a traumatic event or traumatic traumatic memory and then there's also chronic trauma and that's mm-hmm. just it keeps happening over and over and over or it's over a long period of time and um i mean often how we come out of that depends on what our support system like Yeah, looks like in the middle of that.
1: And that chronic trauma sounds like that was the population you were working with in Africa.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Some of the kids had just an acute trauma where, I mean, not just, but an acute traumatic event, like losing your parents. Um, but they didn't have a support system, so it ended up um, mm-hmm. perpetuating and being like kind of lodged there, and they, they never had the chance to grieve through it. And others were, they were in not really great living situations, and it just ended up... Yeah, and it's, it could be like that around the world.
0: Yeah, so when we when we think about your experience, especially with those kids in, in Africa versus what you see here, I, I um I believe I remember you have what two or three children of your own. We have four. Four. I was I missed one. Apologize. No
2: worries.
0: Um. So you've raised your own children. You've been on the mission field with Rick and your family. And you've encountered the the children um, and dealt with specific issues that were traumatic. What was that like for you?
2: Honestly, it was it, it was really life giving once we had a tool and a handle to to move around to help and to, to step into it. Yeah. At the same time, learning about trauma highlighted some of the trauma in my own life. Mm. And that was um, yeah, that was really hard. It was kind of a, an eye-opening experience to realize that many of the people that get involved in caring-type work or service-type work are doing it because they have their own history of trauma. Yeah, And so that was one of those things that was like, oh, shoot, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go do some work and I'm going to have to deal with my own stuff before I can help somebody else.
1: And it's interesting too because we know the fight, flight, and freeze, but that caring component, to Ann's point, is a, legitim- is a legitimate way that many of us try to attempt to deal with our own traumas.
0: Super smart of you to mm-hmm. have got eyes on your own story and to be able to attend to that because you're a human helping humans no matter where you are on the planet you're still human and I think it's really smart, but you said something that really stuck out to me. It's you realized you needed a tool. You saw the problem you were in the, you were experiencing the reality of the problem, but you didn't have something And that. I know what that feels like, you know, mm-hmm. to not have to, to be facing a problem, but not have a good tool. Mm-hmm. And again, you were obviously smart enough to find a tool. Is that when the, connection with trauma-free world came
2: yes that is when the connection came and it was it was a lot about we're we're we love these kids we're taking care of them we're providing them with everything they need why are they not doing well and then recognizing you know what we actually don't know everything that we needed to know we we're actually a lot of the time triggering trauma or activating trauma in the kids unintentionally, because we're not aware, we just weren't aware. Here's an example of that. Um, many of the kids that we had been working with, um, when kids get a, they w- would call it a spanking in America, but that's, it's a pretty common practice in a family in Africa to have some kind of corporal punishment. But they'd grab a little twig off the tree and uh, there would be a le- like a little switch on the back of the legs for the kids. Um, and several of the kids that we'd worked with had been abused that way, verbally and physically abused with a stick, and so our teachers in the classroom, they work on a blackboard. You know, there's no whiteboards or smartboards in in Africa, but the teachers in the classroom would would grab a stick from the tree and be pointing to the blackboard to point out all of the information on that she that we're teaching, like completely innocent, nothing. But it literally, as soon as she'd pull out that yep. stick we had kids moving to fear brain and they couldn't think in the classroom. And it just was like a simple way we could, we could undo or we were triggering trauma without even knowing it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. As I listened to you describe your own posture, engaging this culture and then getting, you know, the reality of needing a tool, getting the tool, finding that, that, that process. But you said again, something that, you didn't realize that your helping was triggering. Boy, doesn't that help us? Like, I don't understand why my child or why in this relationship, what I did, unbeknownst to me, triggered the person. But if I am self-aware, I can realize that, you know, okay, something I did caused something to happen. May not have been my motive or intent, but something happened. If I could, I I often say I'm mining for meaning or I'm looking for the meaning behind the reaction instead of Mm -hmm. quickly jumping to conclusions. Okay, why did my partner or my child or my friend, why did they respond that way? What's behind that? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, self-aware and Mm -hmm. trauma-informed. It's a really interesting story. They were triggering the children, which would make sense. And not aware that they're doing it, and you were on the ground, like you started to see this unfold.
2: We started to see this unfold, and as we learned more about about trauma, we just started to pay attention to what potentially could be triggering situations and tried to create a different story in a different um, environment. So we, we we looked at the whole. We looked at a lot of different things, but. First, we had to just learn about how trauma impacts a person. Then what's happening up in the brain when somebody starts to get triggered? Why is it that they can't learn in the classroom? We started asking those questions. And then we started saying, okay, so how can we create an environment of felt safety? And then how can we start working on emotional outbursts and behavior? And like one by one started just ticking down this list of things that we had been learning and really practical handles and tools to step into that.
1: A novel concept, learning and application. Mm-hmm. You're learning something, and look at how simple it was. Just use a different pointer or don't point or mm-hmm. find a way to help them mitigate against or separate or differentiate what they're seeing or experiencing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure.
1: You, you've you referenced
0: a couple times the, the 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 concept of the executive part of the brain or the survival part of the brain can you kind of unpack, and we've talked about this before, so this is not new to our conversation, but can you, from your perspective, and talk a little bit more about the brain?
2: Sure. So our brain, this is a simple, let's call this the simple um, lay, layperson's perspective of the brain. The front part of our brain right behind our forehead is the executive functioning part of our brain. It's where we have our emotional control center. It's where we have flexible thinking. Um, we have our prioritization part there, our impulse control, self-monitoring, task initiation, organization, planning, all of those upper higher level thinkings, thinking goes on up there in our upper level of our brain. I mean, hopefully right now, like while we're talking to each other, you're engaging the executive functioning part of your brain. You're able to think about what I'm saying. I'm listening to what you're saying. If you ask something I'm not expecting, I can pivot and ask answer the question a little bit differently but we're engaged with our executive functioning part of our brain Mm
1: -hmm.
2: now if somebody were to walk in the door which there's a door behind me i think we'd all kind of move to the alert an alert part of our brain right we'd all be like oh somebody's coming in the door and we'd avert our attention we'd stop paying attention to this conversation if it was somebody we knew like if it was sandy rob's wife we'd be like oh Oh, okay and we our, our brain would immediately calm down and we could go back to using the executive functioning part of our brain mm-hmm. but let's say let's say a lion came in the door there's literally nothing I'm going to say to you that's going to cause you to pay attention to one word that I have to say right <laughs> yeah. you're going to be yeah. you're going to move to the fear part of your brain I mean we all are and we're all going to be thinking like how can we get safe How can I get myself to a safe place? And that's where the, you talked about that, the fight, flight, or freeze part of our brain kicks in and we start doing things just to survive. And with um, the kids that we're working with, you know, over time, if a a child is continually in fear, they'll come up with some really good strategies to keep themselves safe. And those strategies are manipulation, triangulation. Yep. Aggression, violence, control. And again, they're not, they're not using the thinking part of their brain, so they never would do that in a normal situation and if they were able to access that. But when they're scared, I mean, the brain's going to choose. Am I going to survive? Or, of course, that's what it's going to pick. I'm going to survive. I will literally do whatever it takes to help me my, myself feel safe.
1: We've said it before. The two responsibilities of the brain are to protect and to connect. And in that order, because if you don't feel safe, to Anne's point, we have to address that lion.
2: Yeah, we have to address the lion in the room for sure. Yeah, yes.
0: So I like Anne how you described their coping tools, because we wouldn't, I wouldn't go there automatically. And I, if I'm, if a listener is a parent, for example, and they're starting to evaluate their children's behavior. Like we don't generally, we usually criticize or, or kind of
1: discipline those type of behaviors.
2: For sure. We think of them as bad behavior.
1: Bingo. I think it's one of the gifts that traumatology has given um, this narrative that there's always a reason for behavior. And to Ann's point, those aren't bad behaviors. Those are survival behaviors.
2: That's right. It's a coping mechanism that's worked for them in the past. And so they're going back to that coping mechanism. It's a bad coping mechanism. We want to help them come up with a different coping strategy, but it's not bad behavior.
1: Well, it's a coping mechanism. And see, I I think Trauma um, Free World views it this way, but I could be wrong. It's not a healthy coping mechanism in a different context.
2: That's right.
1: You know, it it, it works when you're dealing with a lion. It doesn't work when you're sitting around the table talking to people you respect and care about.
0: Yeah, if I'm sitting with a client in a clinical therapy session and I'm dealing with addiction, so a dependency on something, I'm not going to tell them to stop it. Right. (laughs) I'm going to seek to understand why that resource is in their life. And look at how I phrase that. For them, it's been a resource. And oftentimes it's going to be my attunement toward them, my softening toward them, that they can understand themselves from a healthy perspective Mm -hmm. to understand why they're choosing that, Mm -hmm. as opposed to me shaming or criticizing them for having that substance be in their life, right? It's there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's probably
1: based on some trauma, and understanding that looks and feels a lot like grace, mm-hmm. right? I, I am attempting to get into your shoes and see things from your perspective. And I know somebody else who has done that a long time ago. So here we have this
0: higher functioning brain, and I appreciate the, um, the assumption that we're functioning. I was thinking <laughs> of that too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's making the- a
1: big assumption there for me,
0: <laughs> but when when things don't go well for the the brain, when that lion or when that threat presents, um, and we shift to what the survival brain, mm-hmm. the fear based brain, is that what happens?
2: Yeah, we move down into that fear brain, and like right, like Rob said, we're gonna we're gonna protect ourselves um, in that moment. So we'll do whatever it takes to feel safe again. Yeah. But if we, from the outside perspective, can look at that behavior and as soon as we see manipulation or lying or triangulation or any of these behaviors and we can say, okay, that, that person doesn't feel safe. They're in survival brain. These These are not their, this is not who they are and this is not their behavior. Something happened to them that's causing them to move towards this. So how can I move towards them and help them feel safe in the middle of this so we can calm that part of the brain down and then eventually move back to the executive functioning part of the brain and have the conversation about what happened in that moment.
1: And children don't have the vocabulary that we're using. So to your earlier point, it's about my responding in such a way that increases the probability that I'm... I'm a safe person for them.
2: Yes. Yes. We want to build and establish safe relationships. And that is done in attachment and connection type relationships.
0: When when we talk about this first stage of softening towards somebody, displaying behaviors that are maybe contradictory to our preference, Mm -hmm. but if we have the maturity to be able to attune to them, um, on social media, like Instagram, really, I like it because it's pictures, right? I'm, I'm picture yeah. oriented, but oftentimes I, I'm, I guess I'm subscribed. My wife and I share an account, but we see the dodo, which often shows, um, animal rescue. I'm partial to animals. I, I like Odin. We always give a shout out to Odin and yep. the, in, in the podcast. He's recovering from nationals.
1: I, I, I was going to ask you how he did. Yep,
0: yep. He was at nationals last week. Um, He's recovering. Okay. Yeah. He's napping, things like that. We're slowly integrating him back to home life, (laughs) things like that.
1: I say it all the time. He's such a diva. Yeah. Um, But
0: I love, there's something about watching a rescue. And so the video basically goes, they find a dog or a cat. uh, So they find a dog. The dog uh, is sheltered under a porch, you know, skin and bones, bone showing, mangy, Mm mangy, Um, super scared, the rescuer's hand goes out, they try to bite him, they use some device to, to get around the animal's neck, pull it into safety, put it in a cage, take it to a facility like a vet, examine it, start touching it, doing treatment, and then they just kind of like time lapse. And it's always amazing to see what the animal, what the dog looks like in the beginning of the video. In then over stages of care and treatment, that dog becomes the color of its coat, its temperament. It becomes alive again, and it becomes what it was designed to be. So I'm just relating my own interest in the rescue of animals and how, I mean, I believe all creatures of God are worthy of rescue, mm-hmm. right? Humans, of course, but it seems like these individuals that we interact with are deserving of rescue and that what we see is not who they are.
1: I would take it a step further. They're not only deserving of rescue, but it's our responsibility to do it.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree.
1: You're outnumbered. (laughs) Why can't I be counted in? (laughs) You are counted in a... Messing
0: with you. So so that's, again, Rick and Ann on the mission field. I mean, that's that's your heart. I mean, and you're still traveling globally, continuing to train trainers to do this. But we're parked at this spot talking about the brain, the function of human beings, children, parents, marriage relationships. There's behaviors that, again, are just contradictory to, to safety and wellness and wholeness. Um, you know, that kind of leads us to, um, a part of this conversation that, and you shared with me about connection and attachment. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I'd like to do is spend some time kind of unpacking that because we've kind of set up the conversation to understand what it's like to be in a relationship and why is connection and attachment so important.
2: Connection and attachment is so important because we were created as relational beings. And when we find ourselves in a secure, connected, attached relationship, um, it gives us the wings to fly, basically to do all of the things that we would need to do to survive in life. It gives us self-esteem, gives us self-efficacy. It helps our emotional development to come out so that we have appropriate emotions for different situations. It gives us the ability to regulate ourselves. It doesn't mean we always self-regulate, but we know where to go to get help when we need to calm down. Um, And it really builds a base of viewing the world through the lens of trust. People are trustworthy. I can trust the safe people around me. And if we've never had that then it takes work to build that relationship but as that relation you know as you connect someone to another person and they be, that becomes their person you can watch all of those things slowly start to grow in that person's life
1: just like Matt's metaphor of the rescued dog you're watching them grow and this is what I hear you saying you're watching them transform before your eyes as they're learning that not all people or touch is um, traumatic
2: exactly Yeah and it's one of the things I love about the brain is that you know scientists have this big term this that it's neuroplastic or it has neuroplasticity yeah. it's like this superpower that our brain can grow and develop and change over our lifetime I mean that is a god-given gift like you can be 90 and start working on your trauma issues and you can heal from that yeah. it is it's a beautiful thing that our brain can do that
1: because science also tells us that trauma physically impacts the development and the size of the brain. So it's to answer to Ann's um, point. It's like, that is a beautiful thing that we're not trapped in a trauma response state.
2: That's right.
0: It, it can. I mean, if you've lived with it, my guess is if you've lived with it for any duration of time, um, it integrates into your identity. I mean, it, is, it becomes, in, in a sense, the maladapted software on your hard drive, and as you develop, it keeps informing your development.
1: And with trauma, trauma research and theory, that integration manifests itself in fragmentation. It, it fragments the identity. So I learned to always be on alert. That's right. And we're broken in relationship, we're healed in relationship, and attachment makes that possible, mm-hmm. healthy attachment. Mm-hmm. So we, we talked and on
0: a telephone call in preparation for um, today's recording, and we talked about Sue Johnson and the Emotionally Focused Therapy approach. Mm-hmm. And the one big takeaway I have from that is – You had talked about the neuroplasticity or I would say the emotional plasticity, the idea that if I grew up with an attachment style as a child, I don't have to be labeled that for my whole life. Like if I have an anxious attachment style, Mm -hmm. there's possibility that I can grow into a a healthy, safe and secure attachment style. Mm -hmm. But to Rob's point, it has to be in relationship. Mm -hmm. Is that correct from your point of view?
2: that is correct from my point of view um just a call back to the attachment cycle so our attachment is formed ideally when we're born and even when we're in the womb like we're experiencing what mom is experiencing and and as we're born um You know, she doesn't know exactly how to address all the needs. Mom and dad don't, or caregivers don't know how to address all the needs of a baby. But a baby cries and expresses a need. And then we see all the little hormones start to shoot up in the baby. The baby becomes hyper-aroused. But um, parents come in and calm the baby down. And then you see the inhibitory hormones come and the baby calms down. And that's the initiation of the attachment cycle. So we see that cycle happen. Literally, I think it's like... in by the time a child is 2 it's like over 100,000 times. It's 100,000 like yes I'll take care of you. Yes, I'll change your diaper. Yes, I'll just hold you if you want to be held. And that's the basis for secure attachment. And let's let's just be honest, we don't get it right all the time, but I think scientists call it a good enough parent is 25% of the time that we get it right. So,
1: mm-hmm. it's <laughs> enough. It's getting it right enough so that the brain can make an association you're right the the research is 12 months uh, before birth the prenatal that's significant and then 12 months in that first 12 months of life you're forming your attachment style
2: that's right you're, yeah that's right it's a, it's formed by the time you're 12 months old and that's kind of how you're set up to view the world if that didn't happen and there were disruptions there's a couple of different ways that that psychologists and counselors and social workers will call it. You can have avoidant attachment or ambivalent attachment or disorganized attachment, yep. but that kind of sets you up just for, a, for some hardship. And as you were talking about, Matt, that can change. Um, Sue Johnson uses the term earned secure attachment, that mm-hmm. it can be learned and earned and you can change your attachment patterns and styles with different people who are safe.
0: Mm-hmm. Like I've been here at response care since roughly 2016, something like that. And so I have obviously grown very, I'm very secure here. Like when I come into this space with the people, um, there's nothing that, that triggers me. Like the walls don't go up. Um, I feel comfortable, uh, being more transparent, sharing what is true about my life. Um, also, professionally, you know, sharing about who I am as a clinician. Like, I don't have it all. I, I'm, a, I'm a work in progress. But I feel comfortable being able to share where I'm struggling or what I, what I don't have, what I desire to have. And I never fear that they're going to criticize or condemn me. But it's the culture that cultivated that in me. So that, that attachment style was, was grown because of the, and I love how you described how many times we need to have that reinforcement. Yeah. You know, like if, if, if it's a piggy bank, you know, every week I need to have like a hundred coins deposited in my piggy bank mm-hmm. for me to continue to get reinforced as a secure attachment style. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, it's the piggy bank. Um, and every week I come in here, it's always reinforcing the same thing. When I first started, I came from some abusive relationships in terms of leadership, and we did a whole podcast series on the abuse of authority. You should listen to that. (laughs) It's a good one. (laughs) But the reality is I had to shift because when I first came, I didn't like him. I'm pointing my finger at Dr. Rob. (laughs) He intimidated me, and so I had walls up, and he didn't shrink back from that. He didn't stop being him but over time i kept i kept testing him kept testing him but the culture not just rob the culture kept depositing coins in my piggy bank and that helped me to become whole does that make sense
2: it does make sense i actually love the picture of that because so maybe we have our own biological children and we have deposited lots of coins in their piggy bank <laughs> But when you start to work with a traumatized individual who's who's not been in your environment or maybe doesn't have that experience, just like you like like Response Care Center gave you gave, took the took advantage of the opportunity and started pouring into your piggy bank, yeah. we can do that for a person that has trauma in their background. We yeah. can we can initiate connection with them and start depositing positive experiences and and different new words into their belief system about themselves mm.
1: and it makes it it's so fundamentally important because if you stay with the metaphor their life is going to demand withdrawals that's right it breaks piggy banks mm-hmm. from time to time mm-hmm. and if you have enough of those coins in there when you talked about you know a hundred thousand points of um, trust and response, that makes a difference when life isn't so kind.
0: Yeah.
2: That's right. You're, you're more resilient. You have a bigger window of tolerance. There's yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Got more money in the bank.
1: You got more money in the bank. She actually put the, the proper term on it, resilience, resiliency. And that's, that's helpful for living on a broken planet. Yeah. This is so cool. I love this stuff.
0: Yeah, this is this is rich. I mean, because whether whether our listeners, hopefully, you're you're grasping these concepts that we're talking about, and you're interested in your own development, you're interested in in how you are relating to your own story, and to be able to identify um, without assigning fault to yourself your trauma narrative, because uh, you do, you need to tell your story. Yes. I am a big believer that human beings need to get connected to their story and you usually need a facilitator to help you in the process of finding the words to tell your story because if I can't tell the story, I'm probably gripped in shame and
1: guilt. And to follow Anne's lead. It connected her to her own story. If I heard you correctly, she heals from that yeah, and then does what I think, is really appropriate you turn around and help someone else but you can do it from a a a platform of health yes yes that's that's preferable yeah it's required
0: it's required um what we're going to do now is we're going to pause the the conversation because we're at 40 minutes wow um and i want to be able to leave space for a part two of this conversation um, and um, there's just more to talk about. All right. And so, Anne, it's been a pleasure having you join us. We're glad that you're going to come back. I'm assuming that, that you'll be willing to come back. Um, I mean,
2: the greatest podcast ever.
0: <laughs> see? I, I, I think I think we got her hugs. I do. Right? Thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We've got her bamboozled. We appreciate you tuning in to Mindful Conversations with Matt and Rob. Uh, We look forward to bringing part two of this topic about being trauma-informed in our next episode. Have a wonderful day, wherever that may lead you. Blessings.